Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The first rain hit Cleveland, Ohio, a little after 4 a.m. on Sunday, November 9th, 1913. The temperatures dropped to near freezing, and by 10 a.m., a wet, slushy snow was falling over the city. The city's inhabitants were unimpressed by the so-called white hurricane that had wreaked havoc over the western Great Lakes for the past two days. But then, the blizzard arrived. Tiny icicles formed in the beard of 78-year-old William Lambert, a homeless Confederate veteran, as he huffed his way through the driving wind and snow. He was living in an alley along Eagle Avenue in downtown Cleveland. He had a small makeshift hut along a dirty brick wall and a shepherd dog that kept him company. The alley was a well-known area for vagrants and homeless men. Lambert and his brethren were accustomed to insults from the Cleveland socialites shopping along the avenue. But today, none of them paid attention to the so-called bums as they hurried back to their sturdy homes. But Lambert was cold and exposed out on the street. In the early afternoon, with snow piling up outside, he crawled onto his dirty mattress and tried to get warm. His faithful shepherd nuzzled inside, too. At some point in the evening, Lambert got up again. Perhaps it was to relieve himself on the stained bricks or to scrounge up some scraps from the nearby garbage bins. He pushed aside the threadbare blanket and stepped back outside into the blizzard. He never made it back inside. He collapsed into a snowdrift piled up in the alley. His little shepherd dog tried to wake him up and then resorted to dragging his master's body back toward home. He only made it a few feet with the heavy body in his jaws. So the dog hunkered down and faithfully remained on guard as the snow continued to fall around them. Two days later, William Lambert's frozen corpse was found in the alley by police. He was Cleveland's first victim in the Great Lakes storm known as the White Hurricane. In the next 48 hours, nearly 300 more people would be dead. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a podcast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. 
You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our final episode on the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, a fatal inland cyclone that slammed into the region on November 7th. The legendary storm was national news, eventually becoming known as the White Hurricane. Last week, we heard about the approach of the storm over Lake Superior and how it wrought havoc in Duluth, Minnesota, before moving on to Lake Michigan. This week, we'll follow the surviving crews from ships in the path of the storm. We'll also hear about the blizzard that shut down the city of Cleveland and the storm's lasting effects on the region. By the morning of Sunday, November 9th, 1913, the entire Great Lakes region was on high alert. The storm had already struck Lake Superior with winds over 60 miles an hour before moving east towards Lake Michigan, spawning waves over 20 feet high. Two ships, the wooden Louisiana and the steel freighter Elsie Waldo, had already been driven onto the rocky shores and destroyed. While the crew of the Louisiana had made it to safety, the sailors on the Waldo weren't so lucky. The ship had split in half when it was driven onto Gull Rock on the western shore of Lake Michigan. Huge waves were now hammering the open decks, forcing the crew to lock themselves in the captain's quarters. They were huddled in the bow section of their broken ship awaiting rescue. As the freezing wind and waves pounded the shattered hull, the men started a fire in the captain's bathtub to stave off hypothermia. To keep from suffocating on the smoke, they used two steel fire buckets aimed out a porthole as a chimney. As long as the bow was wedged up on the rocks, the crew was safe and relatively warm, ready to wait out the storm for days if necessary. Then the crew realized they didn't have days. In the rush to the bow section, they hadn't salvaged any food from the rear kitchen. All they had was a single can of peaches. After that was gone, the 20-odd crew members would slowly starve. That was if they didn't freeze or drown first. If a wave knocked the ship off the rocks, they would be dead in minutes. Meanwhile, the storm barreled south over Lake Huron as the afternoon of the 9th wore on. By 6 p.m., winds had reached speeds of over 90 miles an hour. Wave heights peaked at 36 feet, taller than most buildings in the region. The lake had been transformed into a frothing cauldron that threatened to send even the largest ships to the bottom. The waves were high enough to wash over the upper sections of the freighters, called the superstructures, and the winds were strong enough to capsize the heavy steel ships. That night, the storm moving east was met by another low-pressure system moving north from the Appalachian Mountains. The two swirling weather systems collided over Lake Huron in a meteorological explosion. The storm was peaking in strength, and over a dozen ships were caught in its path.
On the shore of Lake Erie, a hundred miles to the south, Cleveland's 41-year-old Weather Bureau chief, William Alexander, was startled when he took his customary measurements at 8 p.m. The fast-moving cyclone had been fed by the low-pressure air for the last few hours, and the storm had changed dramatically since his last report. The Weather Bureau station only made reports at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., so any developments in the 12 hours between readings would be missed by the meteorologists. This gave the storm the entirety of Sunday afternoon and evening to build up hurricane-force winds without anyone noticing. Now, as he sent his 8 p.m. measurements to Washington for the national weather map, William knew it was too late to warn anyone about the impending disaster. The storm was coming on too fast. By the time his forecast was sent out, the white hurricane would already be upon them. He shuddered to think about the freighters trapped on the water. He knew many of them would be at the bottom of the lake by the time the next weather report came out tomorrow morning. Out on Lake Huron, Captain Hagen of the ore carrier Howard Hanna Jr. looked out over his ship from the pilot house. He couldn't even see the back of the ship through the blowing snow. He had never seen conditions this bad. Hagen turned his attention back to the lake for a moment, keeping an eye out for the Port Austin lighthouse at the entrance of Saginaw Bay. By his calculations, the Hannah was still 15 miles offshore, too far to see the beacon, even in clear weather. But he was concerned about the strong winds. The ship could be blown off course without warning. Hagen turned to the first mate at the wheel and told him to maintain their course. Then, through the blowing snow, he noticed Chief Engineer Charles Mayberry creeping along the pitching deck towards the pilot house. Mayberry was wearing a safety harness that resembled a parachute, clipped onto a long steel cable called a jack line that ran the length of the ship. Even with this safety tether, he was still washed off his feet several times by the huge waves breaking over the ship. Mayberry abandoned his attempt to reach the pilot house and turned back to the engine room at the stern. Moments later, a 70-mile-per-hour gust of wind twisted the Hannah into a trough between the waves. This was the most dangerous position for a ship during a storm. Mayberry would later say, after she got into the trough, the Hannah commenced to roll and tumble. The mountainous seas smashed over her. The propeller was out of the water, and it was impossible for us to bring the ship back to head into the sea. We lay in the trough, rolling heavily. A ship caught broadside between waves was at risk of capsizing. If they couldn't turn the Hannah back into the waves, they would have no steering control. Then, Captain Hagen glimpsed a flash of light slicing through the whirling ice and snow. His stomach dropped. It was the lighthouse. It was only a few hundred yards off their bow. The ship was 15 miles off course and in danger of smashing onto the rocks. Hagen ordered the first mate to drop both of the bow anchors to slow their approach. The giant steel chains rattled off the bow and splashed into the turbulent water. But it wasn't enough. A sudden grinding scrape from deep under the deck directly along the ship's hull signaled the impending destruction of the Hannah. Captain Hagen said, She drifted broadside into the reef at 10 p.m., 
The port side fetched up on the rocks first, and the seas and wind pounded her the rest of the way onto the reef. The Hannah had run aground less than 500 feet from the Port Austin lighthouse. To make matters worse, the men were divided between the bow and stern. They had no way to know if their crewmates in the other section were still alive. An enormous wave tore the smokestack off the ship and ripped it away into the lake. The crew watched, helpless and terrified. Large swaths of the pilot house and engine room roofs were torn up by the howling wind. As the steel weakened under the constant onslaught of the waves, a giant crack formed amidships. The Hannah was slowly splitting in half. But so far, the Hannah had been relatively lucky. Between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. on Sunday, November 9th, eight other ships vanished on Lake Huron. Waves had rolled over them with a force of about 2,000 pounds per square foot, twisting the long hulls of freighters and popping the giant rivets between the steel plates. The tiny explosions of steel sounded like gunshots. Winds gusted to over 90 miles per hour, blasting snow and spray that turned to layers of ice along the windows and walls. This added thousands of pounds to the ships, making them dangerously top-heavy. Many vessels went down so fast that the whole crew was entombed in the hull. One of these was the massive bulk freighter Charles S. Price, whose assistant engineer had left the ship before its final voyage. Now it was apparent that decision had saved his life. On another ship, the Regina, only a handful of crew members had time to put on their life jackets. Their buoyant corpses were the only clues to the disappearance of their vessel. Sailors and scientists agreed that the steel freighters must have capsized to sink so fast. Their heavy, rock-filled holds would have filled with water almost instantly and driven the ships into the lake bed. The capsizing theory was on everyone's mind on the morning of Monday, November 10th, as the blizzard moved east and settled over Lake Erie. The white hurricane had left one more mystery behind. A ghostly ruin had appeared in the waves of Lake Huron. A huge steel hull covered in ice was discovered floating upside down with no visible identification markings. The mystery ship was hundreds of feet long, meaning it must have been one of the missing ore freighters. But with most of the upper hull underwater, nobody would be able to tell which ship it was for several more days. Meanwhile, other freighters were still missing. People held out hope that they would show up in a port a day late or be discovered on a desolate stretch of the lake shore with their crews huddling for warmth in the trees. But those hopes faded as the bodies began to drift ashore. We'll hear about the gruesome discoveries along the lakeshore right after this. Now, back to the story. On Monday, November 10th, 1913, the storm known as the White Hurricane had left a stunning trail of destruction across the Great Lakes region and dumped a record-setting 21 inches of snow on Cleveland, Ohio. 
After two days, the blizzard was weakening on its way into Quebec. But the snow was still falling in Cleveland. An additional 17 inches fell that afternoon. Snowdrifts reached heights of six feet along the city boulevards, and electric lines toppled under the weight of ice and snow. As the power lines fell like dominoes, streetcars suddenly lost power and grinded to a halt. Without power, the cars were stuck. The hulks of stranded tram cars lay dormant on streets all across the city. Any tram lines that luckily maintained power still had to contend with the enormous snowdrifts blocking the tracks. Pedestrians caught outside in the blizzard leaned into the wind as they tried their best to reach shelter. Many people who were stranded across town from their homes had no choice but to hole up and wait for the storm to pass. By Tuesday morning, November 11th, the storm had petered out over eastern Quebec. It had been two days since the blizzard hit Cleveland, but there was still 18 inches of snow on the ground, enough to cancel a lecture at First Baptist Church. The lecture was to be on the general topic of regional weather patterns, and the speaker was none other than William Alexander, the city's weather bureau chief. William didn't mind the cancellation of his speech one bit. He was far too busy tracking the storm damage across the region. His instruments had recorded 21.2 inches of snowfall in the city, a full eight inches more than the longest standing record. In that morning's newspaper, William had been quoted saying, take it all, the depth of the snowfall, the tremendous wind, the amount of damage done, and the total unpreparedness of the people, I think it is safe to say that the present storm is the worst experience in Cleveland during the whole 43 years the Weather Bureau has been established in the city. The storm had impeded at least one other famous lecturer's schedule too, Helen Keller, the blind and deaf but outspoken advocate for disability rights, had been in Cleveland on a speaking engagement and been trapped overnight. She later said, I knew it was storming before I was told. The rooms, the corridors, everywhere vibrates with the power of the storm outside. Cleveland's urban infrastructure was desperately unprepared for such a heavy snowfall. Emergency services resorted to using horse-drawn carts to reach victims when their gasoline engine ambulances became mired in the slushy snow. Firefighters carried equipment by hand or on horseback to the small fires that broke out during the storm. While Cleveland was digging out from under the snow, the Great Lakes shipping community was taking stock of the enormous toll the White Hurricane had taken on their freighters and crews. Fifteen steel hull freighters had been sunk or run aground. Countless smaller wooden steamers and sailboats had been reduced to driftwood, and almost all of these vessels were missing crew members. The death toll was still being calculated at the end of the day on the 11th, four days after the storm first hit. Bodies were washing up, but at least 178 sailors were still unaccounted for. The single-day losses to commercial shipping would remain unmatched until the Nazi submarine attacks of World War II. There was an ugly footnote to this sudden appearance of corpses along the lakeshore. 
Policing the thousands of miles of shore was impossible. Looters would comb the rocks for cargo and bodies, taking belongings from the dead with little regard for respect or ownership. On the evening of the 11th, one brave story of survival emerged. The crew of the L.C. Waldo, which had broken apart and left its sailors huddled in the bow section, was finally rescued after three days. Every crew member was saved, even the ship's dog. The happy story offered a brief respite from the cleanup. But on Wednesday, November 12th, all eyes turned to the mystery ship floating upside down in the middle of Lake Huron. Most of the steel hull had settled beneath the waves, and by the afternoon, only the bow still bobbed above the water. The ship would sink completely within days, so any identification would have to take place immediately. Otherwise, the unnamed wreck could be lost forever. So far, the only clues to the vessel's identity were the bodies washing up along the southern end of Lake Huron. Bodies had been recovered wearing life jackets from ships called Regina, Wexford, James Carruthers, Charles S. Price, Turret Chief, John A. McGean, and Argus. All of these were steel ships over 200 feet. The mystery ship could have been any one of them. The situation was further complicated by the ship's location between Canadian and American waters. The international border ran right down the middle of Lake Huron, and neither government was willing to order an expensive salvage operation first, especially without knowing to which country the ship belonged. But the owners of the missing freighters were eager to figure out who this vessel belonged to. They decided not to wait for the government's decision. Several of them banded together to pay a private diver to approach the wreck and find the name painted on the side. However, the operation was more complicated than originally anticipated. Though the storm had passed, wave heights were still elevated above normal. Keeping a tugboat steady alongside the capsized hull was difficult and dangerous. Many of the sailors involved had never seen a ship upside down. They didn't have anywhere to tie up on the smooth steel plates of the upturned hull. Even if they did get alongside, the diver would have to stay out from between the tugboat and the capsized ship. If a sudden wave slammed the vessels together, he could be crushed to death. The operation would have to wait until the seas calmed. William Baker, a professional diver from Detroit, arrived on Friday the 14th. By then, Lake Huron was calmer, and he was ready to go immediately. He boarded a tugboat called Sport for the overnight journey onto the lake. By 6 a.m. on the 15th, they were anchored alongside the bobbing steel hull. Baker donned his enormous rubber suit and bronze helmet. The huge, clunky outfit represented cutting-edge diving technology in 1913. Two crew members had to help him lumber over the side and drop into the water, all while keeping his airline and safety tether clear of any obstacles. With a calm breath, Baker disappeared beneath the waves. The normally clear light blue water was still gray and muddy. 
the ferocious storm and its 35-foot waves had churned up sediment that obscured the water for weeks. As he submerged underwater, Baker was mostly blind. He said, I felt her sides all the way down for 20 feet. Then I lost it, but I kept going down, expecting to run into it. When I discovered I was too far down, I started to come back up until I ran into the pipe rail. There was a round railing, and I went until I found her name. I stopped and took my time. I read the name twice and then once more to be absolutely sure. The name was painted in black on white bulwarks. It said, Charles S. Price. The 524-foot ore freighter had departed Ashtabula, Ohio on November 8th and capsized sometime during the height of the storm on the 10th. As soon as the news spread that it was the price, former assistant engineer Milton Smith came forward. He had abandoned the ship in Ashtabula after he had a premonition of impending disaster. Now he was volunteering to help identify the bodies that had washed ashore. It was a gruesome task. Milton was saddened to see his old crewmate's waterlogged corpses laid out in the morgue. He remembered how certain Captain Black had been that the last trip of the season would be a success. Now, the captain and his crew were all dead. One of the bodies belonged to Herbert Jones, the steward and cook of the price. Jones was still clad in an apron, not a life jacket. Looking at his old shipmate's body, Milton said, there Jones was, just as he looked when he was about to prepare a meal, which shows just how quickly the boat must have gone down. This conclusion was typical for most of the ships lost in the white hurricane. The storm had whipped the lakes into a frenzy of deadly waves that overcame them with very little warning. The massive forces broke steel hulls wide open, shattered wheelhouses, and drenched boilers before sending the ships to watery graves. A few days after the identification, the Price joined the others and sank to the bottom of Lake Huron. Still, there was a glimmer of hope that some ships listed as missing or sunk would still turn up. After all, the L.C. Waldo had been reported as sunk, but the crew was found alive two days after the storm had broken their ship in two. This hope was not unreasonable. It was rather common in the early 20th century for a Great Lakes ship to be reported lost before turning up a few days later in a different harbor or with mechanical issues. Most ships in 1913 didn't have a radio aboard and those that did were often too far out to transmit a signal to shore. However, by the end of that fatal week in November, the shipping companies had given up hope that their ships would be found intact, and the families of missing sailors were forced to accept that their bodies would never be recovered. The White Hurricane finally dissipated over northeastern Canada on the weekend of November 15th. The Great Lakes region had been through the worst storm in its history. Now it was time to clean up and rebuild. We'll hear about the enduring legacy of the 1913 storm right after this. Now back to the story. 
Throughout the rest of November 1913, the shores of the Great Lakes were strewn with debris and bodies from the freighters that had been caught in the White Hurricane. Shipwrecks were piled up on rocks offshore or run aground on desolate stretches of beach. Evidence of the catastrophe was turning up for weeks afterwards. Meanwhile, cities across the region were digging out from under massive snowfall and repairing the damage from the vicious winds. In Chicago, at the southern end of Lake Michigan, the water cribs had been damaged by the enormous waves. The cribs were water pumping stations a mile offshore that provided most of the city's drinking water. Each one had a bunkhouse for the maintenance crews stationed there, and they were forced to replace all the furniture and supplies after a rogue wave shattered the windows. In Cleveland, several hundred miles southeast on Lake Erie, towering snowdrifts had blocked the railroad tracks. A train coming in from Chardon, Ohio, was snowbound by drifts over eight feet high. More than 300 people were trapped on the train for over 30 hours until rescuers could dig a trail to the passenger cars. Snow wasn't the only lasting consequence. The weather patterns in the wake of the White Hurricane complicated navigation on the lakes for over a week. In Detroit, Michigan, slightly warmer air behind the storm created severe fog that settled over the city for several days. On November 19th, two ships collided at a major dock because of the reduced visibility. News of the crash spread, further traumatizing other freighter captains. The next night, the fog was so dense that all boat traffic halted. No captain was willing to risk the safety of his ship and crew. They had seen an unprecedented level of destruction on the lakes and now lived with a new wary awe of the natural power of waves and wind. Still, there were schedules to keep. The Great Lakes shipping industry had learned a painful lesson about the dangers of inland seas, but the captains still had to finish their final runs of the season. Within days, the freighter traffic resumed as captains raced to deliver cargo that had been delayed. A few weeks later, another victim of the brutal storm was found partially buried on a sandy beach a few miles north of Muskegon, Michigan. He was identified as Captain Axel Larson. He had been aboard his barge, the Plymouth, when it went down in Lake Michigan. His was the last body found before winter set in and halted the search. Exact numbers were difficult to compile in 1913, as no single company or government agency kept track of the shipping losses on the Great Lakes. But with the recovery of Larson's body at the end of the year, the ultimate toll of the deadly storm was finally able to be calculated. Eventually, the Lake Carriers Association, a conglomerate of shipping companies and cargo purveyors, released a year-end report with some sobering numbers. 253 sailors were drowned on the steel freighters that went down in the storm. And this number didn't even reflect the full scale of the tragedy. It only accounted for the 12 large ships that had foundered. Other tugboats, small sailboats, and wooden steamers had been destroyed, and their crews were gone forever. Lake Huron alone had hosted 17 ships at the height of the storm on November 9th. 
only two of them had made it back to port, and both were severely damaged. The rest were sunk or aground. Across the rest of the Great Lakes, over 70 vessels had been caught in the water. In addition to the sunk freighters, another 31 ships were run aground on beaches and rocks. The damage to the shipping industry, including ships and cargo, totaled nearly $120 million in today's currency. The record-setting losses were largely blamed on the captains themselves, but many people looked at the Weather Bureau warnings as insufficient. It was an unfair accusation for meteorologists like William Alexander. He had been fighting a losing battle from the start. Beyond the gap of 12 hours between national weather reports, the Weather Bureau simply didn't have the technology to accurately predict the storm. The White Hurricane had been the result of unseen high-altitude cold air slamming into low-pressure humid air over the lakes. Meteorologists had no way to predict the air currents, which blew thousands of feet in the air. It wasn't until the discovery of atmospheric jet streams in the 1920s and 30s that meteorologists thought to study these high-level wind patterns. But in 1913, the process of weather prediction was still little more than calling someone to the west and asking them to look outside. While the telegraph allowed for these reports to be compiled simultaneously, the accuracy was often suspect. As a result of the storm, the Weather Bureau unveiled a new level of storm warning called the Gale Warning. This new label was reserved for tempests with winds between 38 and 55 miles per hour. Anything above 55 miles per hour, and the Bureau issued the simple but serious storm warning. The terrible toll of the white hurricane influenced captains of even the largest steel ships to take heed of these warnings. The Weather Bureau also began to phase out its system of using flag signals to communicate. Over the following years, they transitioned to direct radio transmissions. These became the standard for disseminating weather reports. As the decades wore on, radio technology greatly expanded, and the shortwave marine radio was soon common on all ships. This allowed them to not only receive Weather Bureau reports, but also transmit up-to-the-minute information on wave and wind conditions and provide warnings to other nearby vessels. Vessel safety technology also developed, including more efficient life jackets and survival suits. Sailors were safer in emergencies and during the day-to-day -day work above deck. But there was no taming nature's fury. Storms continued to wreak havoc on the Great Lakes. The tugboat Sport sank in a storm only a few years after carrying the diver to identify the Charles S. Price. And over 50 years later, nature still had power over even the most modern technological advancements. In 1975, the most notorious sinking in Great Lakes folklore occurred. The ore carrier Edmund Fitzgerald disappeared with all hands on November 10th. It was exactly 62 years to the day after the white hurricane struck. The huge freighter was making its way across Lake Superior in the midst of another November gale when the ship broke in half. 
it sank so quickly that not a single radio message could be sent before the crew was overwhelmed. Except for this infamous reminder in 1975, the powerful storm of 1913 was largely forgotten over the 20th century. Then, in 2013, the huge wreck of the ore freighter Henry B. Smith was discovered on the bottom of Lake Michigan. A book about the expedition soon followed, and once again, the public was enamored with the century-old storm. The stories of huge ships being overcome by the power of the lakes made for captivating entertainment. Today, the Great Lakes continue to be a primary inland waterway for North America. Freighters still churn through the waves on the same routes they did over a hundred years ago, and nearly all of their captains know the legend of the 1913 storm. They keep a sharp eye on the western sky for the approach of the next white hurricane. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. For more information on the 1913 Great Lakes storm, amongst the many sources we used, we found Freshwater Fury by Frank Barkas extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back with a new episode next week. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. 